Hello all, and welcome to another Mangum Talks podcast. This is Spencer here, and I'm with BJ to bring you another our third episode of Mangum Reads. BJ, how are you doing this week? I'm doing quite well. Thank you uh, for hosting this, I guess, Spencer. <laughs> hey, if you ever want to... T- if you ever want to t- ever take over hosting responsibilities for the show that was your brainchild, I will happily yield it. But for the time being, we are handling uh, two short stories that you encourage us to read by Edgar Carrot. What brought BJ? What encouraged? What uh, led you to suggest these short stories this week? Um, I, I wanted a little bit of a departure uh, from our sci-fi and fantasy kick that we had been on, um, and go a little bit more into just straight-up fiction. Um, we also wanted a little bit more of a, uh, stopgap measure between, uh, the past episode and Guards Guards, since it is a somewhat longer book. It's actually a book instead of a short story and, uh, something that I didn't remember, which I think I might like warning in the future that it doesn't have chapters. It just sort of changes point of view, or at least the, uh, Kindle copy that I have doesn't. Oh, no, it's the most oddly structured book I've read in a long time. It just kind of just keeps flowing from one point to the next without any real clear thematic breaks. I mean, it'll it, it at times just jump between different perspectives in the same scene and just keep going. Yeah, which I like, but it's how I normally read things is, you know, before bed, I'll read a chapter or two, sort of wind down my day, something like that. And as I started reading guards guards i was flipping through and and i was like you know it seems like it should have been about a chapter now i'm just gonna give up and now you know i'm 60 percent through the book or something like that and it's like huh well i guess there are no chapters and uh i can't do my normal reading style with this so yeah yeah i read like five ten pages at a time as i'm slowly drifting off after a, after a day at work it's a rough book for that because i feel like i have to go back two pages every time i start because there was no clear point to end on <laughs> yeah, but. so so uh, next week we'll we'll get more into guards guards, but uh, I was talking about Edgar Carrot. Um, yeah, he's a, a author that that I ran into at some point, I, maybe during college even, and then um, I think I listened to an interview with him on NPR and reread some of his stories and started recommending them to to everybody that I could convince to read him because I just find just how he writes things so entrancing he's, and so he's fascinating. An, he's an interesting writer to read about because I was, after I read the two short stories, um, which, as you said, if you're going for a goal of giving us a quick read, these two together, I think, add up to about three pages. So, yes, I appreciate the break. Um, but in terms of the writer himself, it was fascinating to read people's commentaries about him because everybody had an entirely different perspective on what he was trying to say or what he was doing. The only thing they seemed to agree on was how much he meant to them. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, I, I think really the, one of the big impetuses to, to him writing is trauma while, while he was serving in Israel. And it, to me, this really looks at an outlet for emotion and sort of a little bit of self-therapy um, right. after the trauma he, he uh, went through well, let's, uh, while he served. Let's go back a little bit. What can you tell us about the man himself? Who is Edgar Caron? Oh, well, that's he, he's different things to different people. Um, well, just the facts to start. <laughs> You know, hardline Israelis would say he's a traitor and, you know, other people would say he's a star of uh, Israeli literature. Um, he's... Uh, so I'm picking up he's Israeli. That's a good starting yeah, point. Israeli, born in Tel Aviv. Um, it looks like he still lives in te- Tel Aviv with his wife, who's an actor and theater director. Um, and he's... Been, he's done a lot of uh, writing throughout his career. Some of his family is ultra-Orthodox, and, and that's a little um, different than Edgar Carrot. Um, apparently, his uh, nieces and nephews aren't allowed to read his comics or his work because really? of their religious beliefs, which I find so uncomfortable. Huh. Um, just because... 
you know, I guess in my mind as religion and, and I guess my religion, Judaism is, you know, absorb all of the knowledge that you possibly can that, you know, to maybe you don't agree with something, but, but to, you know, censor yourself from it just seems wrong to me. Um, Must make for a very I, awkward Passover for that family each year. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that he probably doesn't really keep kosher and things like that, so uh, <laughs> maybe he goes to their house? I, I don't know. Possibly, possibly. I can't picture him hosting and then coming to him. Um, yeah, reading a little about him, it's, it fits an interesting middle ground in terms of uh, what I see about Israeli culture. I mean, both of his parents are Holocaust survivors. He was born in the 60s in kind of like a middle ground between the hardcore Zionist movement that founded Israel and the more modern consumerist maybe era that's emerged since. And I heard several people comment on him being like a voice of that kind of middle ground generation. Yeah, he, he seems to sort of fit somewhere in between. Um, and I think it's a large part of, of Israel, and, and I don't really want to get into too much of, of the political uh, quagmire. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but... But yeah, he, he sort of seems to be definitely not a hardliner, but you know, not not particularly far left. And and I would guess he speaks for for a large chunk of Israelis with some of his beliefs and his feelings that that are you know a little bit more middle ground than than a lot of the rhetoric that that at least filters over to uh, this side of well, a couple of ponds, but you know, this side of the the world. Well, the two short stories you recommended seem pretty indicative of his work. It seems like he really started becoming part of the international scene in the early 90s. And both of these uh, are well-known, but as for what exactly they mean, we're going to need to talk about those because I'm uncertain and curious to discuss what your views are. Where would yeah. You, where would you want to start? So so actually, before that, I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about an experience that, that he had that I think oh, speaks to um, a little bit of where some of these things are coming from. And, and I might get some, some of the details wrong, like um, I, I messed up uh, last episode and said that the story was called Zipper when it was called Unzipping. Um, and so I'm, I'm doing some of this from memory and some of this from, from some stuff in one of his interviews, but... Um, apparently he wasn't great at taking certain orders and things like that. So he transferred from unit to unit. Um, and then for a while he was, um, in a unit where they would have one person sitting watch in a room. Um, and basically like you'd go in, you'd sit there for like six to eight hours or, or whatever, and then you you know you'd switch off with the next guy. And um, one of his good friends, you know, was on um, on these watches, not with him, but but rotating with them. And you know his friend wasn't doing so well, and and but they didn't really know how badly he was doing. And I believe at one point his friend had the um, shift right before him and committed suicide by uh, eating hmm. a bullet. And so basically they, you know, they came in and cleaned up and, and either the next watch or the one after that was Edgar's. And so, you know, I don't know. I, like, I assume they, they actually cleaned up, but it was, it's basically like he's sitting in the chair that his friend blew his brains out in and having to, to sit watch. Within hours of, of the death of his close friend right there. Yeah. And, and you know, apparently, oh, actually, he says he's the one that found him. Oh, even better. Um, and, and he says that two weeks later he wrote his first story. So as life literally soldiered on. Yes, and, and, and I think that, that his writing is, is very much an outlet to the trauma that he experienced. And then, you know, I would guess, you know, sort of a form of, of you know, post-traumatic, at least self-therapy. I think it's important that a background to point out here is that 
somewhat unique for a lot of the Western world. Israel very much still requires mandatory military service for, I will say, nearly all of its citizens, but we'll avoid that political yep. battle right now. Um, yep. But it's viewed, so, it's viewed as very much part of the national character and nationally bringing people together as people of all economic classes, all backgrounds, with one exception, are brought together to uh, serve the uh, common purpose, to um, provide for the national interest, and that it's viewed as very much part of the... Uh, bringing together of an Israeli identity. And he, I think, I, I th for as traumatic as it was for him, I think he's even written a couple times about how important he still views that to be. Yeah. Um, so men have to serve three years, and I believe women have to serve about two. Um, and uh, actually, one of the things that I sort of find interesting is, is in some ways, similar to the U.S., women usually don't have a, as much of a combat role as men. But it's not for the reason that that happens in the U.S. Um, for a long time, um, a lot of the people that they were fighting would never surrender to women. And so they ah, have to kill them. That is an interesting point. I hadn't thought so of that they, detail. They pulled women from the front lines because of that. I mean... Meanwhile, in the United States, it's, it's the uh, theory of Newt Gingrich that women are at increased risk for vaginal infections that should keep them out of combat. But I think the Israeli view has a little bit more grounding in fact, probably. Yeah, uh, a little bit, a little bit more sensible, uh, you might say. Well, um, so, so yeah, uh, I, I, I think it's an, an interesting way to to have a society, and I think that you know it. It's kind of funny because one of the things that my mother has sort of argued for over the years is that, you know, the U.S. should have a similar system, you know, maybe not serving in the army, but doing some sort of national service for, for you know, a year or whatever after high school. So, first of all, people, you know, a little bit of time to grow up a little bit before they, you know, jump into college and, and excuse me, in many ways sort of try and decide where their life is going from mm -hmm. then on and also, you know, help the, uh, country do things that it needs to like clean up national parks or, you know, oh, repair sure. some infrastructure or whatever. There's any number of things that could make it a very good project. I mean, one of the biggest complaints our generation has is that people don't feel like they have enough direction, enough purpose or enough training to actually develop a direction and purpose in life. But at the same time, the, uh, I mean, the United States had a long history of a draft going back to, you know, the Revolutionary War, but Vietnam essentially killed that in our cultural identity. And I don't know if practical will be able to resurrect it. Whereas for Israel, the draft has been an essential part of keeping the nation state alive since its formation. And so they have a much more proud view of it than we do here anymore. Yeah. Um, I think you were a little bit young, but... Um, I, I remember serious discussions with my friends freshman year about whether they were going to institute a draft. Uh, it was something that we were surprisingly worried about, but in retrospect... I'm, what, two years younger than you? Yeah, but I feel like enough. I don't know. I, I remember the discussion as we were talking about, you know, the war on terror, as we were talking about increasing numbers of conflicts spanning the world. We were discussing it. It's just, will we need to change policy to meet our demands? And yeah. it was there, but it faded pretty quick. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was sort of right as we were, as the nation was talking about entering our, uh, well, I guess the war that we're still in. <laughs> we're fighting a war against a tactic. It's not something you end anytime soon. But as for these short stories, which one would you, <laughs> yes. which one would you like to start with talking about today? Ooh, um, I think let's let's start with pipes. Okay, I got a copy up right here. Pipes uh -huh. was interesting. Uh, I think I mentioned this before mentioned these before um, before the call started, but. Uh, Carrot really, really reminds me of Vonnegut's writing style, of where these kind of characters that are just kind of going through life, blown along Billy Pilgrim style, and this story, Pipes, really, really reminds me of that. Yeah, um, I think that this was, I think that this one in particular was sort of in response to a lot of the suicidal thoughts and feelings that probably were, he was trying to grasp and understand especially dealing with his friend's suicide. So well, I, I think that's that. sort of a, in some ways, an origin from, 
of this uh, this story. At least to me, it it kind of is. Well, what's our plot summary? What does the story talk about? Oh, Spencer. <laughs> as best as you can do with just literally the words in the page. We can go into detail about what it actually means later. Yeah. Um. So we'll say that that you know this kid sort of views the world in a somewhat different manner. Uh, to the, to the and, point that he's labeled actually uh, mentally diseased, that he was suffering from severe perceptual disorders. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he gets a job at a factory making pipes, and he kind of starts making weird-shaped pipes, and he puts marbles through them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he didn't like it, but he did it. And then he somehow constructed a, a pipe that when he put a marble through it, it disappeared. He was super excited about this. And then he decided to copy it uh, such that he'd have one that he could go through and disappear. And so he does. He spends uh, yeah. hours upon hours designing the most ultimate labyrinthian series of pipes realizes that he's accomplished his goal, goes through it, and ends up somewhere else, where he's not fully sure of his exact condition anymore, but thinks that he might be angelish. Yeah, he he sort of describes what is sort of classically viewed as an angel and and a halo, and, and, you know, I sort of like a little bit of humor that, you know, there are a bunch of other angels, you know, hanging around and playing with the marbles that he sent through the pipe. (laughs) And he, makes, uh, and he makes very clear that though they are all angels now, how they got to this particular condition is very unique to each one of them. So he talks about what, a pilot going through a loop at a precise point in the Bermuda Triangle and and sort of all these sort of little, I would almost say, lion in the witch, lion the witch in the wardrobe style, like, you know, you pop out of the wardrobe and, you know, you're into a, a, another land. Um, yeah, I think- and I sort of appreciate that he doesn't make that reference as directly as 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 maybe uh he, he, d- he does talk about a housewife going through the back of her kitchen cabinets which was not literally a wardrobe but we're getting about as close as we can without trademark infringement um and and so i, I love how he ends it which is you know if if you're suffering from the same thing that i am and and you're looking for your way to get here please bring a deck of cards because we're sick of the marbles <laughs> and I think it does a really good job of at least a an introspective look at someone who at least feels that he has a different view of the world than everybody else. And so other people perceive that there's that something wrong with him and, and he perceives that it's just, you know, something unique and something different, but a detrimental enough that he wants to leave this world. Yeah, that's a key point of it, where he is ostracized by society. I mean, the the example he offers at the beginning is that he's asked to look at a picture, and to him, every one of the pictures is just fine. He sees nothing distinct, he sees nothing objectionable, he sees nothing really likable. They're just fine to him, to the point that other people look at him and think that he's fundamentally flawed, that he's not noticing the details, he's not noticing the uh, deficits. Whereas to him, pretty much everything of life is just fine. It's just another thing to do. It's just another thing to go along to. Um, but you say it reaches a point that he is so much ostracized or disconnected from society that he wishes to practically end it. That he wishes, like all these other people who've become angels and left the world, to just no longer be with the world and be separate from it. You talked about yeah. this being a very personal story for Carrot. Have you said you said this was one of the early stories that he wrote? I believe so. It's interesting what he. What, it's interesting the the ending is interesting to me because he talks about how the one happy moment that he had in his life was when he put together this plan to be done with life, to be done with the world, to find a way to escape from it. And now, like all these other people, he's accomplished their goal, but they're really bored. <laughs> they, yeah. They, they finally made it outside of everything else. They finally made it separated from everything else that was just forcing things upon them or that they were not part of or not connected with. But now they need you to join them because they're bored and lonely with it. Yeah. And I mean, I I think that 
I don't know. There's so many things to to unpack here, but but I guess to a certain extent, I think that a lot of it is, you know, even if you're among your peers and they accept you, it doesn't mean that that's automatically going to make you happy and content and you know fulfilled. Right. Yeah. I guess so. So some of it comes from without. Some of it comes from within. And and you know I, I think he's sort of making light of it with the please bring cards, but I, I think in in sort of a good way. Yeah, I think it also similar to that it charts how difficult it is to practically be an individual to have one, to have views truly unique to yourself or be truly separate from anyone else. That ultimately we are in a culture that depends on other people. That your life is built around other people. To truly chart your own path, to truly remove yourself from the world, can very much leave you alone in things and very much kind of uh, asking other people to come to you rather than the other way around. And I, I think that that it also talks sort of speaks to the comfort of the individual of asking other people to come to them rather than to go rather than him or the individual going to the group. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I feel like we also have to acknowledge that the, the pun that he's playing about, you know, losing his marbles. Yeah. I thought that was pretty on the nose right there. Uh, and then finding them again and then not being happy, you know, happy with that. It's it's other people finding them too, and they're it's interesting that they're all playing with other people's marbles, people that have not yet reached their point yet. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's an interesting look at uh, what makes us human and what makes us different. And how and how much of those we're able to accomplish on our own versus how much of those are being decided for us. I don't know. Also, there's something seems very unpleasant and cliche to say, but sort of beautifully sad about it too. Hmm. How do you mean? Uh, but, you know, it's, it, it's in very many ways depressing. You know, it's there's something wrong with this, this, this kid, and he grows up a little bit and commits suicide. And, you know, he, he, he ends up among the angels or whatever and, and sort of finds, you know, a group of people that are like him, but, you know, has removed himself from the world and then obviously misses it. Well, he makes a point of tr- saying that he didn't. I mean, he makes a point of drawing distinction that he isn't one of those who killed themselves. That those who kill themselves have to return to live their life all over again. But people like so, him uh, have escaped from the world because they were ones who were never really with it. Now, okay, so removed himself from the world but misses the things from it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely an interesting story. Of I was reading an article that was talking about how when he was when he was coming into his popularity, it was this his entire generation growing up in Israel that really wasn't connected with Zionism, that really wasn't very much connected with anything. And that he was almost like the lead, the people put him forward as almost the leader of a movement of people that were almost purposely rejecting isms or rejecting being connected or uh, being passionate enough about a cause to want to actually fight for it or lead it. It's almost like a more optimistic spin on nihilism that people were trying to associate with him. Yeah, and well, I, I think that there are many parallels that that we can draw to the American experience, and and I also think it's kind of funny because the like Gen Xers, mm-hmm. or maybe millennials too, sort of depending on like where you you know you draw the lines, are sort of a lost generation, and I also kind of find kind of find it really funny that the boomers didn't seem to have that that same disconnect between I like I, I I would draw a direct line from the the Zionists that fought in the World War of Independence for Israel and then you know maybe also fought in the 67 war mm-hmm. uh, but but that generation to the greatest generation and then I feel like there was sort of a gap between the greatest generation and and millennials and Gen Xers with the boomers that just sort of wasn't the there's a Yiddish phrase which is nishtahina nishtaher which is you know it's they're neither here nor there right you know you know they weren't as nationalistic as sort of gung ho you know they're not coming off this you know major win at World War Two they're they're those the children of those people and and you know some of them sort of ended up in Vietnam and beatniks and 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 you know sort of maybe hippies depending on exactly where you draw the line Mm -hmm. you know they they had they had more of a place 
and so like they, they're sort of a continuation of you know riding the high of of the greatest generation whereas i feel like stuff in israel progressed a little bit faster probably because of all of the developed nations that it was associating itself with oh, sure. and quickly came into this you know somewhere between anti-war a little bit more of that the hippie movement and very quickly became a little bit more of a lost generation as it were yeah, I, th I think it's an interesting idea of where it was a generation that wasn't really given its own battles to fight. They were just kind of fighting for the legacy of the battles that came before them, for the legacy of the generation that they were following. That they almost seemed to embody or be tasked with a, a more inherent skepticism because they were always just being asked to believe in something that had come long before them rather than something they'd helped raise up themselves. Um, uh, it's interesting to see that Israel very much went through the same thing as the United States has. Now, if we're going to talk about the human condition and what an individual's identity is, it seems like a good transition on to unzipping, because that seems to be one of the key themes running through that work. Well, what can you tell us about unzipping? This one was, uh, I, I know for a fact you've had me read this one before, because that little zipper under the tongue thing stuck with me pretty hard. I, I think the best thing that I can say about it is sometimes, you know, everybody sort of feels like they're, they're a stranger in their own body or they're a stranger in their own life, maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. This sort of talks about, I guess, a little bit more of, you know, what if, what if everybody was like that and you could actually find out what, you know, what's lying underneath that normal surface? Man, is it creepy. It, it really is. I mean, it starts with a couple. Uh, Ella, and can you pronounce that guy's name name for me? Ziki. Ziki. Is that a very uh, Israel name? Israel? Uh, a little bit more, yeah. Well, I, 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 they seem to be very clearly framing him, his name as being distinct from the uh, German guy that emerges from him. Uh, yes. Of where two of them are making out, and she feels a prick on her uh, lip. And he realizes that she's been cut in some way, and he starts freaking out and gets her some ice so that he can stop the bleeding, all while just trying to pass it off of, well, oh, I'm sorry, I must have bitten you in the heat of the passion. And she laughs it off while at the same time kind of a little bit shocked to her core that he's very much lying to her and hiding something from her. And so... Yeah, because she knows that that's not what it was, because, well, presumably as, you know, one gets to be an adult, one sort of knows what, what a let's say a love bite feels like. And, and, you know, this was sharper and different. I, I would hopefully be able, I, and if I was in a similar circumstance, I would hopefully be able to recognize the difference between my lover just nipped my lip versus my lover has a zipper in their mouth that is slicing me through. I don't know that for certain. I've not confronted one of those two scenarios, but I hope I'd be able to tell the difference. Uh, I, w I would hope so too. <laughs> um, well, after, and it makes me uncomfortable that you might have had near misses that you're unsure. You know, it's one of those things where I didn't necessarily most carefully investigate every circumstance to know what caused, but I'm willing to assume that it was one rather than the other. Okay. Uh, but after their little episode, uh, she... Actually, hmm? so, so I actually wanted to, before we move on too much further, I really, I liked that... They, he uses dashes and, and basically makes it very clear like that, that she's holding her lip or, yeah. you know, or she's sticking it out and talking funny, and I could hear it. He's a very like, authentic way of writing. He writes very much how people talk. talk. There's no um, ornamentation put on it. It's very much, this is the sound they're making with their lips right now. Yeah. So, yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, it's very much, she's very much slurring. What, what was he saying? Nothing ha happened with no no peas, no ths, and no peas. At least if she is, uh, has her mouth partially blotted with the ice to prevent the blood from flowing. So yeah, yeah, I like that too. Um, but she goes through this and she heals, but they're being very cautious with each other because you know something pricked her. But yeah. one one night she decides to take advantage of the fact that he apparently sleeps with his mouth wide open and looks into his mouth or feels around under his tongue, and there she finds a tiny little zipper. Yep. Which, as he describes it, and this is just a horrifying visual, she pulls at it and opens him like an oyster, and inside was Jurgen. Which, I never want to see a short film of someone, fil of someone portraying that visually, because that would haunt me for a long time. You don't like Men in Black, Spencer? 
I enjoy Men in Black. There's certain scenes in Men in Black that I prefer to avoid just seeing firsthand. Okay, I mean, well, well, obviously you wouldn't want to see it in real what? life, but... Even in Men in Black, like when in the opening scene of when the guy's cloak falls away and he's holding a head. I'm okay with that. There's something about unzipping, though, that makes it way creepier to me. Okay. A little bit more uh, based in reality? A little bit more based in reality, or just so much more... I don't know, the, the zipper just makes it feel so much more mechanically almost cruel. Or it makes it makes it if anything I almost say it makes it feel less real. It makes it feel so much more like it's something that's created rather than natural. Fair enough. But uh, she unzips him, and somebody very very different emerges. Jurgen, who is goateed, whereas Daziki was you know responsible, kind, caring, a paramedic, a soldier, always caring for her ends. Jurgen is has a goatee. He's literally the evil twin out of Star Trek. <laughs> uh, has meticulously shaped sideburns, and as she takes time to point out, an uncircumcised penis, which very clearly frames him as being non-Jewish. Yes. Or in this case, very distinctly, almost like Germ- German, Israel's stereotype of what a German is like. So, so, how, uh, so, so how was her life with her new Jurgen in place of Ziki? Uh, well... Well, actually, started... actually, before we get there, what does she do with Zeke after she's done unzipping him oh, yeah. and Jurgen emerges? Takes the, the, the Zeke wrapping, and, and that, that just sort of, like, I don't know, it, it, again, to bring up Men in Black, it, you know, it sort of reminds me the the bug at the end, where, you know, the skin oh, yeah, is sort the, of still there. The Edgar skin. Yes, the, some kind of Edgar suit. Oh, that's right. It's sort of so weird to me that that, that she'd hide it and or keep it, but but also just like uh, it'd be weirder to throw it away, you know. Like I kind of get it's like you know you don't want to leave it out because that's just super weird. <laughs> There'd be questions. People would want to want to ask you what exactly happened here. So you got to well, put it well, away. And presumably Jurgen would too. Like you know, it, it it's like having your ex's small clothes or something bedroom. <laughs> like even, you know, they've moved out and you haven't seen them in a while, but like, Oh, you know, I guess they must've left that, you know, that's super weird. So I think that this is the, Oh my God, this is super weird. If I throw it out, that's going to be even weirder. I got to do something for it. And you know, where they kept the bin bags, everybody has that stash of like plastic bags. Oh yeah. Except you know, in, in California, those are a little bit harder to come by. Paper but, bags, sure, whatever. Uh, you have to pay for those, too. Anyway, so so the stash of bags were, were you know, they're trash bags. Um, but, but yeah, so so this is sort of like the typical bad boy. Like, he drinks, he smokes, he, he goes out, you know, he, he's, um, I want to say he's in a band, but, like, he basically, he doesn't have a job. And, Her parents hate him. He's great in the sack. Yeah. Uh, okay, um, you know it, his Hebrew is bad. You know he 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 would shit on Israel. He's prejudiced. Uh, how shall I put it? Yeah, emotionally abusive. You know, it's like you you made me come here from Europe, mm-hmm. which is also super like it, it's like somebody else popped out and they have a history. Oh yeah, that, that was fascinating to me. That not only it's not. Ziki, it's a it's a thing with its own backstory. It has its own imagine imagination of history that led it to this moment. Right, and and it changes her too. Mm-hmm. It it sort of feels like you know not much happened, but like you know her, her parents didn't like them, but but Ziki still exists. So her mom actually likes Ziki and doesn't doesn't like Jurgen and calls him you know a, a non-Jew and and her father always asks you know is he going to get a job Jurgen's you know, fairly impolite to, to her father. I love Jurgen's quote, because this is the kind of quote of where I would be very inclined to hit somebody if they ever told it to me. Work is like <laughs> a mustache, Mr. Shrivo. It went out of style a long time ago. Get a job. Just get, get yeah. out of my presence. Yeah, I, I quite like that. And so dealing with all of these inherently contrary elements compared to what you had with Ziki, uh, Jurgen eventually leaves, returns to Dusseldorf so he can actually be on his own accomplished music because everybody around here is just going to make fun of his accent and be prejudiced against him because they don't like Germans. And they discuss some of the, some of his hor- horrendous music that 
I really like the, you know, even in Germany, his weird music and shitty lyrics, you know, not going to fly and go very far. And, and, you know, I, I can sort of see it, see him being like, um, you know, the stereotypical guy. It's like, oh man, you know, we had this amazing sex and it was so good. And it's like, all right, that that's great, dude. You need to stop talking now. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how I'd feel if one of my, uh, Significant others wrote a song about me about how my uh, orgasm compares to waves breaking against a rock. I don't think that would fly very well with me. I feel like it'd be the other way around, which I guess makes it more, a little bit more sense in context. But, but you know, it, it, it's sort of like Taylor Swift without any of the talent. Um, <laughs> Pointed commentary. Very true. Didn't think about it in that way. Uh, yeah. But he leaves, and some six months later... Uh, she actually goes back among her bin bags and finds the tzatziki wrapping and kind of thinks back about her decision to unwrap her boyfriend. Yeah, and and that it might have been a little bit of a mistake. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love her thinking that, you know, it might have been a mistake, could be. You know, it's really hard to say with these kind of things. Just like, you unzipped your boyfriend and stuck his skin behind your trash bags. Yeah, but I mean, I feel I feel like this is also a commentary on, you know, remembering the past better than it might have been rather than just a, you know, this is a super weird situation because I guess there are relationships in my past that I've looked back f- more fondly on than than they probably were in the moment. And, you know, there have been times where I've, you know, gotten to revisit them a little bit and that hasn't always uh, or it's it, it has put into much clearer light why they were former relationships and not current ones. Well, she she doesn't seem particularly nostalgic about it. It's just like, oh yeah, that happened, huh? But the only, the only thing she gets from it is her suddenly remembering the zipper and thinking now to examine herself in light of it. Yes. Because she rinses out her mouth, and I find this was interesting, is that very distinctly where the scar was, where she was cut by his zipper, her own little one. Well, actually, no, no. It's it's under her tongue, too? Yes, it's under her tongue. Okay, she has the scar still, but she has a zipper under her tongue, and she thinks about it. And she starts to uh, ponder the idea of it. It's almost like a form of wish fulfillment, that if she unzips herself... In some ways, she'll be accomplishing everything that she wanted to be. She'll be the person that she always wanted to be. She'll get that tattoo that she was always afraid to get because she was afraid it was going to hurt. Is she yeah. is she thinking that there's going to be some continuity maintained here, or is she purely willing to abandon herself to be the person that she always wanted to be? Well, I don't think it's the person that she'd wanted to be. I think it's, you know, I, I guess... To me, and this is probably a little bit of projection, maybe, mm-hmm. but but also the like what a tattoo would have been, mm-hmm. maybe when he was writing it, and and what it is in the religion, because for for the most part, Jews don't have tattoos. Mm-hmm. There's a you know a law against it in Deuteronomy, but there's a slightly more recent reason um, that you know for a certain period of time and for a certain particular reason, Jews were tattooed with numbers. And so on top of the Deuteronomy ban, there was a uh, bad feeling towards tattoos. So for the most part, and I would say it's still very true today, even non-religious Jews don't have tattoos. And, and it's interesting because both of for for both what happens to Zeke when he turns into Jurgen, also what she imagines of herself if she unzips herself, they both they're both very distinctly Jews that upon unzipping become much more stereotypically Gentile. Of where yes. he becomes very much a, a German tourist kind of stereotype. She imagines herself. She worries about having freckled hands and a dry complexion and a tattoo, which would all be suggestive things of not being Jewish. Maybe. What what well, is he what? I was going to say I'm pretty freckly and, and, and have a somewhat dry complexion. Okay, but, the, the tattoo uh, at least. The, <laughs> the tattoo at least. So what is he trying to say there in terms of this uh, unzipping of, of, you know, becoming a different person? Are they imagining what life would be like to not be Jewish? Uh, I think so. I, I mean, I think that there's a 
desire maybe or or a wistfulness about fitting in better in the world mm-hmm. um you know there's a there's a word called hellenization which is kind of fascinating and and funny and and uh, you know i think you'll sort of appreciate the the history that it references but it, it it's sort of the uh naturalization is probably not the right word but but the uh, loss of Jewish heritage and integration into an adoption of beliefs into a society. And, you know, it's not sort of the separation, but like more of the, like, I'm not going to have anything to do with Judaism and I'm going to be the exact same as everybody else that I'm living around. And it comes from, you know, quite a while ago when the Jews and the Greeks were hanging out with each other, not always so friendly. And that those, uh, the Hellenistic times. Oh yeah, and, and this comes from a period of classical history of when the ancient Greeks were very much the standard culture of much of the Mediterranean, to the point even the famous Romans were all learning Greek growing up, were all practicing Greek culture. And that was true throughout the entire Mediterranean area, and it was true in Israel too, to a certain degree, which led to, to a, a very large degree actually, which led to a massive cultural divide between those. I would almost say of the elites or those of the merchant classes that were becoming very much steeped in Greek culture and Greek religion and Greek philosophy and Greek belief, and those of much more traditional bend that were at times almost violently opposing this divide in the culture that was forming. Yes. And I, I heard, I've heard one historian talk about before that the famous uh, uh, Maccabee revolt that was uh, against the Seleucid Greeks um, was in some ways historically probably more of a civil war inside of uh, Judea between the much more traditionalist Maccabee Jews and the more Hellenized uh, other Jews that were more in support of the Seleucids coming in. Oh, yes. I, I think that's definitely where it started and, or, you know, exactly what the politics were. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's very clear in, in, in the tradition that that's at least a part of what happened. You know, it doesn't, most uh, histories and traditions don't really like to say that there was um, insider on insider violence, and, and I'm sure that that's some of what occurred. Um, but as much as the uh, religion likes to say that you know the miracle was you know oil lasting for for eight days and burning, you know very clearly this is celebrating a military victory, right. not just. Uh, and celebrating it through a celebration of Jewish culture and Jewish religion and that accomplishment. And way of background, the Maccabee Revolt is from which we get uh, Hanukkah from. That the, yeah. the the end victory of after they'd won and after they'd thrown out the Greeks and possibly other Greek influences in Jewish culture, they lack the temple. Yeah, they lack sufficient oil to uh, have it burn, but somehow by miracle of God, it persisted. Yes, um, and so there there are sort of loads of well. Let, let's say details there, but, but basically, you know, it's sort of a, we're relighting the light of, of the, the religion to, to, uh, shine through, you know, the believers. So, um, and it's become a very potent symbol of Jewish belief. I think, you know, in some ways the most, one of the most iconic things that, that happened around world war two was, you know, Jews were, there were Jews that displayed a menorah uh, uh, in their window to, to celebrate Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. And and so it, it's sort of very much part of the, I guess, pride in showing the world that, that, that this is part of uh, who you are. And so I guess to, to come back a little bit, you know, the, the stereotype of having a tattoo is sort of, at least at the point this was written, I think very much a, a departure and an assimilation into the general culture of the time. The story, it represents an interesting divide in Jewish history in terms of how they describe their own history. Whereas you talked about, there's there's a a definite element that resists this kind of Hellenization that takes very much a pride in traditions. But reading through Jewish historians, nobody is more willing to take the piss out of their own history than Jews. Yeah, you you could say... uh... I, I think Jews have been self-reflective comedians for, and, and we, you know, I feel like we, we kind of started 
might have started that little uh, line of uh, of jokes. So. It's fascinating reading the history because someone you know, like you read American history about the um, read various elements about American history. It can take us decades to develop a, re- a revisionist view to challenge preconceptions. You read yeah. like classic Jewish works talking about you know, like the Great Revolt against the Romans. The main Jewish historian we have, Josephus, is constantly saying, "Yeah, we were kind of dumb there. Yeah, we kind of fucked up there." Yeah, we kind of brought that one on ourselves just over and over and over again. It's, yeah. it's just a very di- interesting historical account. I think in some ways it reflects in the story of where it's there's an inherent bit of divide and reflection and pondering in Judaism that is uh, reflected in how he's describing what this unzipping experience is like. You know, it brings up major things that are part of being Jewish and sort of still exist and you know, being circumcised, having a tattoo, and and respect for your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, thing, you know, all of these things that that are, you know, sort of sprinkled in the story, but are, are such important parts of, of the culture that that derive possibly way back when from the religion. Yeah, it's interesting with how much. I mean, throughout the story, she's very much connect, as you said, connect with her family, connect with the culture. But there's just this inherent temptation on her part to leave it all behind, to become something entirely other and new, to almost escape from it. And that's, that's an interesting motivation. It's also interesting that Tzatziki doesn't have the choice. She forces it on him as such. It's almost like she's making the choice for him. Well, she's literally yeah. making the choice for him. Exactly. Um, and, and ends up regretting it. Does she? I mean, she does. When she comes across his literal wrapping that she's stuck behind her trash, she just kind of looks at it and goes, "You know, it's really hard for me to say either way whether this was a bad call or not." Yeah, well, I, I think sort of regretting the whole thing more in a wistful sense, not in a like I definitely shouldn't have done that sense. Is is her sense of regret tied into the fact that she's pondering now making the same decision for herself? I, I think so. Maybe not. I mean, it's sort of it's, it's sort of a weird, like, you know, what she'd be like inside. Like, what's the real her? And, and so, you know, I find that a little disconcerting. And, and I guess also to the other side of things where, you know, there is always, you know, pressure to assimilate and, and or be different. And so, you know, you could also view this as, you know, being not liking being different and wanting to be the same. Yeah. And, you know sort of a similar thread to pipes about wanting to be among, you know, population that is similar to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what he's trying to say with it. Cause each has their own, pro- each, each one has their own ramifications attached to it. If he's trying to say that, you know, you're finding the real you, I'd almost say that embodies a certain level of uh, self hate in the culture of where the real you is entirely different from what you're representing the outside world is entirely different from the culture you've seen you, that you've been raised in. The real you is inherently foreign. So uh, you may be saying I mean, that, but it's an, it's an interesting commentary if that's the case. I think that, that, that it's, you know, he's talking to people that are trying to, that are struggling to find themselves yeah. and find a place in society. And, and I think that, that it's good that it's, you know, it's sort of an uncomfortable story. When I said wish fulfillment earlier, I don't don't think I really meant it literally necessarily. I think it's just always every person as they're growing up, going through the world that they've been raised in, the world that they emerged in, we've all kind of had these occasional ponderings of what if I was just somebody completely different somewhere else? And I almost feel like this zipper is what's giving people the gateway just to explore that concept in herself. When she's pondering it at the end, She's doing something that I've pondered many times before. Is it what if I was somebody different or somewhere else entirely? She just actually has the literal means of exploring it. Yeah, but to but do, never going back. That's the, that, and that's the key aspect of it. Of where what you were it was the cover that you were presenting to the world is left inherently behind and forever, literally put next to the trash. Yes. Which I mean, if we want to talk about what that's saying culturally, is that. If you reject what you are, if you reject the culture that you're from, if you truly do try to make your own path, it's forever. That there is no way to recover from that level of rejection. That you are inherently having to go off to some metaphorical Dusseldorf to find your own path in the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think that's that's the, if you estrange yourself, maybe not, you know, try and find yourself, but if you, you know, you really estrange yourself from your roots, 
you know, maybe it's something that you can return from, but you know, it's probably not the best idea. And I, th I think in some ways with Jurgen, he almost represents that there's no one more passionate than a, than a convert of where now that he's embraced this foreign culture, now that he's embraced this different way of life, he's constantly snidely targeting where he came from. He's constantly saying, he's constantly dismissing, he's constantly insulting, he's constantly feeling like they're the ones that don't tolerate him anymore. That he's, yeah. he's so much embraced this new way of life that to make it work, to convince himself of it, he has to reject every single thing about who he was or where he came from. I think that that uh, hits the nail on the head, and and very much a a commentary about under like you you need to understand where you're come from and where you're going to 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 I think really be comfortable with yourself and 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 really be able to find your place in society. Maybe not fitting in maybe not assimilating, maybe not, you know, being perfectly comfortable, but, you know, finding, finding your place. These, these are the kind of little short stories I love. Cause when, when I read short stories by, by uh, like these by myself, I don't necessarily get that much out of them. I mean, they're interesting, they're fun, but then when I go and talk about them with someone else, they just open up like a flower that I'm enjoying these so much more now talking about them with you than I was reading them by myself. So, so, I think I, I'm very much both ways with it. And I, I think it's because, you know, once I found one or two of his stories, I found all that I could read of, of his stuff. And so it was kind of like research, you know, I, you know, I just threw myself into like how he writes, what his uh, stories are like and sort of that way of thinking. And so, yeah, it always expands when I get to talk to people about it. And that's why, I, you know, with, with stuff that I like or I think has meaning, I try and get other people to read it so they can, you know, hopefully get some of the same same things and also some different things. Like there are definitely things that, you know, you've talked about that I, you know, wouldn't have thought about and wouldn't, wouldn't have, you know, put together anywhere near as much. And also when I talk to them about somebody else, things fit together in my mind in ways that like I might not have. I might have sort of had, you know, tickling back there, but then uh, really come together when when I have to, like, form sentences and, and communicate with somebody else about it. Yeah, I think that in some ways returns us back to kind of the opening point that I was talking about, reading all these various commentaries on him, is where it seems like everybody has gotten something unique and different out of it, perhaps from their own perspective that they were bringing to it when they were reading the story. But everyone really appreciates what he does with it. I, mean, I think in some ways it almost makes him just a more authentic storyteller where he's just telling a story and then whatever meaning you want to draw from it's up to you. Um, and, and actually I'm going to pull, pull the, a trick that I pulled from last time and not make you read something, but I'm going to read it to you because <laughs> I appreciate and, and that. You read it. Um, but, but it's just, it, it's a concept that I didn't really think about, but, but he has such a way with words. Um, the story is called Asthma Attack. I saw, asthma saw attack, this one. Yeah, go on. You can't breathe. When you can't breathe, you can hardly talk. To make a sentence, all you get is the air in your lungs, It's not, which isn't much. Three to six words, if that. You learn the value of words. You rummage through the jumble in your head. Choose the crucial ones. Those cost you, too. Let healthy people toss out whatever comes to mind, the way you throw out the garbage. When, when an asthmatic says, I love you, and when an asthmatic says, I love you madly, there's a difference. The difference of a word. A word's a lot. It could be stop or inhaler. It could be ambulance. I read that one immediately after I read Pipes, and it re I really appreciated it. It was such a novel little look. It's such a... Just, such a common little situation, just a, such an interesting little pondering of what you would do in that kind of circumstance and what it would mean in that kind of circumstance. And and I also think it sort of talks to, you know, you can you can take it as, you know, the surface thing that, that only asthmatics, but also, you know, everybody has their own little, I feel like foibles is, is, is you know, making light of it, but, mm -hmm. but things that, that are difficult for them. And when you overcome something that's difficult for you to accommodate somebody else, you know, be it a friend, be it a significant other, some family, that means so much more 
than when it's something that comes easily to somebody. Right. And I just think that the way he says that in, well, you know, he's, he's, I guess a little bit, uh, you know, Kerouac or whatever, you know, that it's many sentences, but you know, this is like a six line paragraph mm-hmm. and it conveys it so well. No, I very much agree. And BJ, I very much appreciate you reminding me that this guy exists because I will be very curious from here to read more of his stories because he has such a masterful way of presenting a very odd situation, a very unique situation to offer a much more broad and meaningful theme behind it. Yeah, and and I also like that they're short stories. They're, I would almost say that they're I, – I, I have a hard time even calling them short stories. I mean that one was like six lines. They're almost just like a non-rhyming poem. Yeah, or you know, a vignette or something like that. And I think that a lot of a lot of the stories that that we've uh, read recently, you know, the past this episode and the, the previous one, if the stories were longer, they wouldn't have been anywhere near as good, mm-hmm. and they could have been longer. You know, the idea is there, and it could have been fleshed out, but I think they would have lost something. Oh yeah, and the each of these stories plays with that idea too of where. None of them ended quite where I wanted them to, but I think they ended where they needed to, of where they almost seem to be defying the idea that there was a clear resolution to the story that he's telling. That we, yep. as we go through life, we don't live a narrative. We don't live a clean set of, you know, oh, prologue, opening, hero's journey, conclusion. We live a, a series of experiences, and that's what we best view reality through. And, 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 you know, if we don't view reality that way, then we're not actually getting, you know, what we need to out of our life. Mm-hmm. Though, you know, I, I feel like at this point, I, I kind of want to ask you, you know, who, who's your, your wizened old man that, that, that gave you all your, you know, Wikipedia powers? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure whether I had a tragic mentor that died about 30% of the way through the story so as to inspire me on forward. I, you know, I may have found my own path in the world. Fair enough. Or, or since you're not quite thirty percent there, well, I guess depending on, you know, your presumably, you know, since you're <laughs> going to be fairly well off and you know a, a reasonable neighborhood, your life expectancy, you're probably not quite at thirty percent. So, so hopefully, no one important to you. What the key, uh, the key thing with all heroes' journey stories is they end with the hero still being about twenty five. What happens after the hero retires or just settles down is usually just left a question for philosophers rather than actually described in the narrative text. Or he writes a book and his nephew has to do something similar. Or that too. Yes, that's another thing to bring up. Oh, no, no, no. I, I think we're done. I was going to say, I think that uh, I'm, I'm going to force you to be my, my straight man for, for, for one joke so I can get my uh, throwing shade on George R. R. Martin out of the way for, for the episode and, and remind people what we're doing for our next episode. Yeah, for next week, we are going through Guards, Guards, a ter- wonderful Terry Pratchett book set in his Discworld series, which will be, I would say, decidedly different than anything we read before in that it is very much a comedy. It is telling us, it's telling a story, it's telling it serious, but it is a world that is inherently comic in many ways. This one character, Carrot, has a sword that is so not magical, Spencer. You know, it's impressively not magical. As it's repeated, I think, about ten times in the first ten pages it's introduced. Yeah, and so I'll do your line. How not magical is it? Mm-hmm. It's so not magical that George R. R. Martin would have given it to one of his main characters. <laughs> and we will do more of that humor come next week. Tune in if, if you want to hear my bad humor, and even if you don't, because you'll get to hear Spencer actually do reasonable analysis of this book. Um, and I'd like to uh, say thank you to Lee and, and Spencer for another shout-out to uh, Mangum Reads. Oh, wait a minute. They haven't put up their latest episode yet. It's, hmm. the, it's the finale. It requires, you know, effort and simmering and, you know, us having jobs <laughs> and work and not wanting to do it until the end of the week. We'll get there. And appropriately being delayed a little bit more than you might have expected because of, you know, good reasons. Like, you know, it's the start of the fantasy football season. <laughs> that may have factored into at least one of our decision makings. Um, <laughs> but for right now, 
guys, always enjoy you listening in. Please post your comments, post your questions, post your commentary. Uh, BJ, who actually checks the website and all of our other digital material, can eventually put together some of those, and we can talk about them. Yep, and as always, thanks uh, for for spending a little bit of time and listening to us. And if you uh, you can always visit us visit us on mangumtalks.com, I believe, mm-hmm. as well as a uh, subreddit mangumtalks, and look at all of our content. And maybe we'll have something new coming up soon. Sounds like a plan. Until next week, everybody. <laughs>